Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Now, of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Go check out Morbidly Beautiful for all your pop culture horror needs. They have everything from reviews, interviews, retrospectives, introspectives, top 10 lists, whatever you want, they have it. Go check it out right now. They also have a great stable of podcasts that you can listen to and enjoy during this wonderful quarantine time that we're in. I know personally, I have been catching up on a lot of missed or just things that have been on lists. You know, podcasts, movies, TV shows, whatever. Now's a great time. Just get on it while you can. Now, today's episode, we are going to go to a very familiar place. I'm talking about something I've covered at least twice in the past, on two different occasions, and that would be the Wendigo. Now, for some reason, I have a strange fascination with the Wendigo, but I want to narrow it down a little bit more to a very specific Wendigo case, or Wendigo. I'm going to flip between the two during this episode, don't worry about it, whatever. Now, today's episode is going to be on a Canadian case. Again, I've been on a Canadian kick lately, being Canadian and all, so it's very close to home, even if it is several thousand kilometers away and about a hundred odd years old. This case is the case of Swift Runner. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Before we get started on the case of Swift Runner, let's just have a recap of just exactly what the Wendigo is. Now, it goes by a few different names and spellings, but traditionally it's the Wendigo. And it is a mythical creature appearing in the mythology of Algonquin people. It is a malevolent, cannibalistic spirit, which turns into humans and could transform into other life forms as well. Some say it has the ability to possess humans. One sure-fired way to turn into a Wendigo or get the attention of a Wendigo is to resort to cannibalism. It doesn't matter the circumstances in which you resort to cannibalism, whether it's for fun a la Jeffrey Dahmer or out of necessity, the Wendigo spirit will find you. Now, there are a few different cases that require a little more in-depth looks, such as Swift Runner, and some potential real-world causes for the Wendigo. But let's start in the mythological. Now, this is traditionally a Native American or indigenous mythology, specifically with the Algonquin tribes. It is stated that the Wendigo is part of the traditional belief system of various Algonquin-speaking tribes in the northern United States and Canada, most notably the Ojibwe, the So'o, the Cree, the Naskapi, and the Innu people. Though descriptions varied somewhat, common to all these cultures was the conception of the Wendigos as a malevolent, cannibalistic, supernatural being of great spiritual power. They were strongly associated with the winter, the north, and the coldness, as well as the famine and starvation. Basil Johnston, an Ojibwe teacher and scholar from Ontario, gives one description of how Wendigos were viewed. Quote, The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation. Its desiccated skin pulled tautly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion, the ash grave death, 
and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton, recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloodied, unclean and suffering from separations of the flesh. The Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. At the same time, Wendigos were embodiments of gluttony, greed, and excess. Never satisfied after killing and consuming one person, they were constantly searching for new victims. In some traditions, humans who became overpowered by greed could turn into Wendigos. The Wendigo myth thus served as a method of encouraging cooperation and moderation. Among the Ojibwe, Eastern Cree, West Main Swampy Cree, Naskopee, and Innu, Wendigos were said to be giants, many times larger than human beings. Whenever a Wendigo ate another person, it would grow in proportion to the meal it had just eaten, so that it could never be truly full. Wendigos were therefore simultaneously constantly gorging themselves and emaciated from starvation. So now that we have the information we need to know about the Wendigo, in case you missed those first couple of episodes I did, let's get on to the case today itself. This is Swift Runner, and I did mention Swift Runner in one of the previous Wendigo episodes. He was a Native American man living in Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta, Canada, and he was born during the 1800s. In fact, that's when this whole thing took place. Now, from an article first published in Old West in the summer of 1990, it states, During the winter, a Wendigo ate Swift Runner's family. Swift Runner was a Cree hunter and trapper from the country north of Fort Edmonton. He was a big man, over six feet tall, and well-liked. He was mild and trustworthy, a considerate husband, and very fond of his children. And a little too fond, if all these events proved to be accurate. All of these traits endeared him to his people and to the traders of the Hudson's Bay Company. But this was not enough to ally suspicion when he returned from his winter camp in the spring of 1879 without his wife and family. When he could not give a satisfactory account of their whereabouts, his in-laws became worried. They decided to tell the Northwest Mounted Police, who had then been in the West for just five years. Inspector Gagnon was given the task of investigating Swift Runner's behavior. He and a small party of policemen accordingly trekked out to the trapper's camp. When the police arrived, Swift Runner was very kind. He showed the Mounted Police a small grave near his camp. He explained that one of his boys had died and was buried there. Gagnon and his detachment opened the grave and found the bones undisturbed. That, however, did not explain the human bones scattered around the encampment. Gagnon produced a skull which Swift Runner willingly told him was that of his wife. Without much prodding, Swift Runner revealed what had happened to the rest of his family, and it's not a tale for squeamish stomachs. At first, Swift Hunter claimed he became haunted by dreams. A Wendigo spirit called on him to consume the people around him. The spirit crept through his mind, gradually taking control. Finally, he was a Wendigo, and Swift Runner was no longer. Then the Wendigo killed and ate Swift Runner's wife. This accomplishment, the Wendigo forced one of Swift Runner's boys to kill and butcher his younger brother. While enjoying this grisly repast, the spirit hung Swift Runner's infant by the neck from a long pole and tugged at the baby's dangling feet. It was later shown that he had also done away with Swift Runner's brother and his mother-in-law, though he acknowledged that she had been a bit tough, if you know what I mean. 
the revolted mounted police party hauled Swiftrunner and the mutilated evidence back to Fort Saskatchewan. The trial began on August 8, 1879. The judge and jury did not view the Wendigo idea in the same light as the Cree. They saw Swiftrunner as a murderer, and the trapper made no attempt to hide his guilt. Magistrate Richardson quickly sentenced him to be hanged. Yes, the death sentence was a thing in Canada at one point in time. However, the sentence did present a problem. The police had never conducted an execution before. Although the Hudson's Bay Company had once hanged an employee for murder, this was, for all intents and purposes, the first formal execution in Western Canada. Staff Sergeant Fred Bagley was put in charge of the execution. A gallows was erected within the fort enclosure at Fort Saskatchewan, and an old army pensioner named Roger was made hangman. On the appointed morning, a bitterly cold December 20th, Swiftrunner was led to the scaffold. Standing over the trap, the unrepentant cannibal was given the opportunity to address the large crowd that had gathered. He openly acknowledged his guilt and thanked his jailers for their kindness, then berated his guard for making him wait in the cold. Nevertheless, the mounted police have accomplished their first execution. A more experienced spectator, a California 49er named Jim Reed, commented, quote, That's the purest hangin' I ever seen, and it's the 29th. Now, I did mention before a kind of a real-world explanation for the Wendigo theory or mythology, and the end of this article suggests that we may view it as a psychosis. What the Cree thought was a Wendigo spirit was actually a rare form of mental illness. Usually symptoms were those that were displayed by Swiftrunner, and in one way or another, most of the affected Wendigos met a similar violent death. Now we can fast forward about 20 years from that first article to September 18th, 2011, and this is from the Edmonton Journal. It was pitch black and brutally cold when Swiftrunner was led from his cell at Fort Saskatchewan Jail to start his long last walk towards the gallows that awaited outside the swirling snow. Swiftrunner had been told to prepare for death and seemed to have hated the advice. He walked confidently into the yard, seeming much calmer than many of those who were there to watch him die. Most of the 60 people gathered near the gallows had never seen a hanging, and they were nervous and anxious about what was going to happen. Sheriff Edward Richard had been delayed by the snow and weather, and was flustered by his late arrival at the fort. The hangman too appeared nervous. Remember, that was just an army pensioner, no experience with, well, essentially killing somebody who seemed fairly defenseless at the time. The execution had been ordered to take place at 7.30 a.m. on December 20th, 1879. With less than half an hour to go, it was discovered that the crowd had taken the trap from the gallows and burned it as kindling, and the hangman had forgotten to bring straps to bind the prisoner's arms. As the sheriff and hangman rushed to get the scaffolding ready again, Swiftrunner sat near one of the fires that had been lighted nearby, joking and chatting, snacking on snacks, and the thick noose hanging loose around his neck. I could kill myself with a tomahawk, he offered, and save the hangman further trouble. Swiftrunner was well known around Fort Saskatchewan, being a striking six foot three with a strapping build and what one policeman called an ugly and evil looking face as I have ever seen. He had once been known as a smart and trustworthy person, but the reputation that won him a job as a guide for the Northwest Mounted Police. But as one newspaper story would later point out, his contact with white men 
however, ruined him. That ruination, in part, came from an inordinate fondness for the whiskey that was smuggled into the area disguised as medicine. Swift Runner was known to be an ugly customer to meet when on a spree, so ugly that some called him the terror of the whole region. The police sent Swift Runner back to his tribe, where he caused so much trouble he, quote, turned the Cree camps into little hells, unquote, and was eventually turned out from his community altogether, retreating into the wilderness with his wife, mother, brother, and six children. The police started to hear stories in the spring. A Cree chief said Swift Runner had, quote, turned a cannibal, and a hunter reported that Swift Runner's entire family had been killed in the woods. But a squad of officers who were sent to investigate couldn't find Swift Runner or his family. Instead, Swift Runner went to the police himself in the spring, telling them that his wife had committed suicide, and that the rest of his family had died of starvation. But the officers noticed something weird. Swift Runner didn't look particularly upset. He looked fairly normal and well-fed. That's an important note. One of the officers noted that the prisoner arrived at our camp in the spring and did not look very poor or thin, or as if he had been starving at all. Suspicious of the story, the police traveled with Swift Runner to his family's camp in the wilderness north of Fort Saskatchewan. After days of searching, they found the remnants of a campfire with piles of bones and human skulls scattered nearby. Some of the bones were dry and hollow, even empty of marrow. A small moccasin had been stuffed inside the skull of Swift Runner's mother, beating a needle still sticking out of the unfinished work. Swift Runner was tried for murder and cannibalism by a jury that included three English-speaking Cree half-breeds, four men well up in the Cree language, and a Cree man who translated the proceedings. A leading Cree English scholar was also brought in to observe the trial and to ensure Swift Runner knew what was being said. Swift Runner sat calmly throughout the testimony of witnesses who described the family being in perfect health when they had last seen them heading out into the woods. Then Swift Runner came out of the woods alone, quote, he said I could not expect to see any of his family because he was the only one left, said Kisi Komei. There was no evidence presented in Swift Runner's defense. Asked if he wanted to say anything, he responded, I did it. The death sentence, as previously mentioned, was the first legal hanging in the Canadian Northwest Territories, an area that includes what is now the province of Alberta. A scaffold was built especially for the execution, and an army pensioner was paid 50 bucks to serve as hangman. Swift Runner declined to spend the night before his execution with a priest, stating, quote, the white man has ruined me. I don't think their god could amount to much. Rumors swirled about the origin of Swift Runner's cannibalism. Some say that he devoured the remains of a dead hunter, something he found in the woods in order to survive and sustain himself. That seems to be the most popular one. However, others do claim that the Wendigo spirit did overtake the poor trapper. It's hard to say what really happened, but as I said, there was a logical, if you can call it that, explanation for what Swift Runner experienced and for his actions. It's called Wendigo psychosis, and the term refers to a condition in which sufferers developed an insatiable desire to eat human flesh even when other food sources were readily available often as a result of a prior famine which caused cannibalism. Wendigo psychosis has traditionally been identified by Western psychologists as a culture-bound syndrome. There is a debate over the existence of a phenomenon as 
a genuine disorder. The theory was popular primarily among psychologists in the early 1900s and may have resulted from a misinterpretation of Northern Algonquin myths and cultures. In accounts of Wendigo psychosis, members of the Aboriginal communities in which it existed believed that the cases literally involved individuals turning into Wendigos. Such individuals generally recognized these symptoms as meaning that they were turning into Wendigos and often requested to be executed before they could harm others. The most common response when someone began suffering from Wendigo psychosis was curing attempts by traditional native healers or western doctors. In the unusual case where these attempts failed and the Wendigo began either to threaten those around them or to act violently or antisocially, they were then generally executed. Cases of Wendigo psychosis, though evidently real, were relatively rare, and it was even rarer for them to actually culminate in the execution of the sufferer. Besides Swiftrunner, there is a fairly other well-known case involving Wendigo psychosis, and I did mention this on one of my earlier casts featuring the Wendigo as well, and that was Jack Fiddler. He was an OG Cree chief and shaman known for his powers at defeating Wendigos. In some cases, this entailed euthanizing people suffering from Wendigo psychosis. As a result, in 1907, Fiddler and his brother Joseph were arrested by the Canadian authorities for murder. Jack committed suicide, but Joseph was tried and sentenced to life in prison. He was ultimately granted a pardon, but died three days later in jail before receiving news of his pardon. Fascination with Wendigo psychosis among Western anthropologists, psychologists, and anthropologists led to a hotly debated controversy in the 1980s over the historicity of this phenomenon. Some researchers argue that the Wendigo psychosis was essentially a fabrication, the result of naive anthropologists taking stories related to them at face value. Others have pointed out a number of credible eyewitness accounts, both by Algonquins and Westerners, as evidence that Wendigo psychosis was a factual historical phenomenon. The frequency of Wendigo psychosis cases decreased sharply in the 20th century as Boreal Algonquin people came into greater and greater contact with Western ideologies and more sedentary and less rural lifestyles. While there is some substantive evidence to suggest that Wendigo psychosis did exist, a number of questions concerning the condition remain unanswered, and there is continuing debate over its nature, significance, and prevalence. What do you think? Do you think there is an actual Wendigo spirit that overcomes people and forces them to eat people, or do you think it is all literally just a psychosis, a form of mental disease, a disorder? that is isolated to a very specific group of people. Personally, I don't know which way to lean. I always want to believe that there is a supernatural element to a lot of these things. Cases like this are very interesting. It's intriguing to think that maybe Swift Runner was possessed by a Wendigo spirit. And while it might be a bit extreme to think that, hey, you can transform into this beast, this gaunt skeleton-looking thing, and hunt other people to eat them and never be full... It might not be as extreme to believe that they are possessed by some sort of spirit. Possessions are a very common belief and occurrence across the world. Some religions and some ideologies recognize them as real, others don't. The same principle can be applied here. Perhaps there is an answer that we will get one day, but as for now we're left with the mystery.
My name is Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a five-star review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also leave a review on Facebook. I'll see it there as well. Any five-star reviews I do receive will be read out on the show with a shout-out to you. So it's a great way to get your name mentioned on the program. You can hit me up on social media, on Twitter, at HorrorShotsProd, as in production, Instagram, at OmnisOriginsPod, or on Facebook, at HorrorShots. If you would like to support the show financially, you can absolutely do so by checking out my Patreon at patreon.com slash horrorshots, or you can even check out my Redbubble store and rock some merch. The link for that will be in the description below. So, until next week.